0: Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace, through Christ our Lord, amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter six, verses one through nine, which can be found on pages 162 to 163 in the Pew Bible. Listen to God's word for us. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord.
1: your foot against a stone. On the lion and the viper you will tread, and trample the young lion and the dragon. set your love on me so I will save you protect you for you know my name when you call I shall answer I am with you I will save you in distress and give you glory be with
2: Today's Gospel reading comes from the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel, verses 35 to 45. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you, you will drink. And with the baptism which with I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers Lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many the word of the Lord writer and teacher Brene Brown often tells a story of getting her nails done and watching as not one but two women in the salon talked on their cell phones the entire time they received their manicures instead of talking with the women doing their nails These two ladies indicated their preferences for nail length and color choices by raising their eyebrows or pointing with their chins. Now, Brene was a frequent visitor to that particular salon, so she knew the workers pretty well. She knew them by name. When she finally commented about the women on their cell phones, both of the ladies doing her nails ducked their heads and averted their eyes. Finally, one whispered, they don't know. Most of them don't think of us as people. After her manicure, Brene went to Barnes & Noble and watched a woman conduct an entire transaction, maybe you've seen this, an entire transaction at the checkout counter, including applying for a rewards card and selecting gift wrap without ever getting off her phone. She never once made eye contact with the person behind the counter. Now on her way home, Brene was thirsty, so she stopped by a fast food place to get a drink. And wouldn't you know it, just as she pulled up to the window, her cell phone rang. She thought it was her son's school, so she did what we all would do. She answered the phone. It wasn't the school, it was someone else. And she tried her best to end the call as quickly as she could. But by the time her call was over, she had paid for and received her drink. While still at the window, she apologized for being on the phone. At her apology, tears began to fill the cashier's eyes. Thank you, thank you so very much, she said. You have no idea how humiliating it is sometimes. People don't even see us. Now, Brene Brown is sensitive to those who are employed in the service industry because she was once in their shoes. She waited tables and bartended her way through college and graduate school, so she had her share of moments of being acknowledged for nothing more than the service she could provide. Everyone, everyone wants to know why customer service has gone to hell in a handbasket, she writes. I want to know why customer behavior has The teaching of Jesus is our central reference point as people of faith, as his disciples. The teaching of Jesus is our central reference point. Whenever we are uncertain about what to do, where to go, or who to spend time with, our first move should always be to reference and then reflect on the teachings of Jesus, especially when his teachings run counter to the teachings of the world. And today's passage holds a teaching that reorients everything. Today's exchange between Jesus and his disciples is pretty intense. Two disciples, two brothers, come to Jesus with a request, a special request, to be given special seats of honor in his coming kingdom. In response to their bold request, Jesus reorients their focus away from meeting their needs, their wants, their desires, to meeting the needs and wants and desires of others. Discipleship is not measured by one's proximity to him, Jesus teaches. Discipleship is measured by one's willingness and eagerness to serve. If you want to be great, you must become servant. Of all, Father Gregory Boyle, a priest who works in the gang-infested projects of L.A., speaks often on the topic of compassion. The measure of compassion, he writes, lies not in our service to those on the margins, but rather in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with each other, with the folks on the margins that we serve. He goes on, for there is an idea that has taken root in the world, an idea that there might just be lives out there that matter less than others. Now, Father Boyle's prescription for how we move past this horrible idea that some lives are of more value than others, his prescription to move past this idea that has taken root in our world is a really simple one. It's service. When we serve another person, Boyle believes, we move toward experiencing the kind of compassion that can stand in awe of what another person has to carry, rather than standing in judgment of the way they choose to carry it. Service, he writes, is the hallway, and this hallway leads to a ballroom, and Boyle calls this ballroom kinship. We might call it the kingdom of God. It's in that ballroom, that place where we realize there is no us in them. There is only us. Looking at the state of things in our world and our nation today, I wonder if service. Radical service to the other might be the only way for us to move past our judgments of those who are different from us, our insatiable desire for stability and security, and our willingness to climb up the ladder of life on the backs of others. I wonder if service might be the antidote to all that ails us. At least that is what it seems to me that Jesus is saying in his not-so-ambiguous words. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Now, if this passage, if hearing those words of Jesus inspire you to go out there and serve, that's great. If this sermon, for some reason, by this power of the Holy Spirit, makes you go sign up to volunteer or do a good deed today, I am happy. But for most of us, perhaps for all of us, there is something that has to happen before we can enter into the hallway of service that leads to that ballroom we all want to be in. We have to be honest about how much we want Jesus to meet our needs. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How often have we said this? How often we approach Jesus as a consumer? How often we come to him with a list, a laundry list of our needs? James and John recognize that Jesus has the resources to meet their need, their want for status and power. And they were not alone in this desire. I am convinced the other disciples are angry. They're angry at James and John because they hadn't thought of going to Jesus first with the very same request. The first disciples of Jesus want him, desperately want him to meet their expectations and to lift them up and above the struggles of ordinary life in this coming kingdom he was talking about. And if they struggled with that 2,000 years ago, imagine how much more we struggle with it today in a time when consumerism has infected every aspect of human life, even the church. It's subtle, but you can hear the change People shop for churches now. They don't attend a local parish. When visitors come to a church, they are often handed pamphlets that tell them everything the church can offer them. The same pamphlets rarely say anything about how Jesus will change and challenge them. People and pastors, let's be real, talk openly about what they deserve, what we deserve from church openly expressing frustrations when those expectations are not met. We talk of membership, not discipleship, reinforcing the idea that our offerings are really just dues in disguise. And instead of giving generously until it hurts, we build up our reserves, fund our endowments, and talk of being here in perpetuity. Instead of molding our mission and our ministry around the agenda of Jesus, we bend his will to meet our own. In her autobiography, Dorothy Day paraphrased theologian Romana Grandini by lamenting, quote, The church is the cross on which Christ was crucified. A difficult word to be sure, the church is the cross on which Christ was crucified. But if we're honest, do we live as if we believe? in our own gospel. Now much of what Jesus talked about service and generosity and sacrifice seems to have been followed rather closely by the church during the first few hundred years after his death and resurrection. As long as Jesus' followers were on the bottom of the empire, as long as they shared the rejected and betrayed status of Jesus, they seemed to understand to grasp his difficult teachings. Values like nonviolence, radical generosity, simple living, and the love of enemies were more easily understood and embraced when Christians were gathering secretly in catacombs, when their faith was untouched by empire, rationalization, and compromise. But starting in the 4th century, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, it increasingly accepted, even defended, the dominant social order. Slowly but surely, the church lost its free and alternative vantage point. And within the space of a few decades, the church moved from the bottom to the top, literally from the catacombs into the basilicas. And when the church became the established religion of the empire, it started reading the gospel from the position of maintaining its power and order instead of experiencing the profound power of powerlessness that Jesus taught and revealed. In many ways, you could argue Christianity became almost a different religion than the one taught by Jesus. And so through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe God has been trying to reform the church ever since. Now, this might seem like ancient history to us, but how many of the controversies and conflicts in the church today are about protecting our power, our privilege, and our place? I wonder if we sought to serve rather than be served. I wonder if we measured our greatness by our proximity to those in need. I wonder if our budgets might begin to look a little different, with more money going out than coming in. I wonder if we'd spend more time outside these walls than we do inside them. I wonder if we'd start to see those outside the church, the ones on the streets crying out for help, as the ones holding the keys to the door that opens the hallway that leads to the ballroom that is the kingdom of the living God. Now, Father Boyle has known a lot of gang members over the years, young men and women in and out of jail on and off drugs some reform some reforming and many simply lost to violence he had seen so many people over the years that someone like lisa didn't really phase father boyle all that much she was a fixture in the neighborhood and everyone knew she, who lisa was because lisa was always screaming screaming about something screaming at the guy who kicked her out of the bar at closing time screaming into the phone To a family member or friend asking for a place to spend the night screaming at the world one day lisa appeared in father boyle's office for the first time it had been a really busy day for father boyle he was late for a baptism but lisa did not seem to care a bit about his important schedule she sat herself down in the chair across from his desk and said i need help i've been to at least 50 rehabs i'm known all over the county you know, I went to Catholic school my all, all my life. I even graduated from Sacred Heart High School right nearby. Then she got really quiet. In fact, the first time I used heroin was right after I graduated, and I've been trying to stop since the moment I began. At this point, she leaned her head on the wall behind her and her eyes filled with tears, and she cried and cried and cried. Until all the tears ran out, and she finally looked right at Father Boyle and said with great deliberation, I am a disgrace. And as her shame filled the room, Father Boyle's shame rose to meet it. Because when she had stepped into his office that afternoon, he had not seen a fellow human being. What he saw was an interruption. Make no mistake about it, we are in a crisis point in American Protestantism. An entire generation of people are struggling to understand the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ. And even worse, they often see us and experience us as being hypocritical and judgmental and too focused on ourselves. And I believe, and I think Jesus teaches, that the antidote to this sickness that is spiraling us towards irrelevance is not greater orthodoxy or a doubling down on our traditions or changes in our policies and procedures. If we want to be great, if we want to make an impact, if we want to be taken seriously, we need to put service of others at the center of everything that we do. We are not here to get our needs met. God has already met all of our needs in Christ. I believe we are here to be reminded of our true purpose, our true calling, that we have been called, and most importantly, we have been equipped to meet the needs of others, to serve others, to care for others, just as Christ cares for us. We are here to follow in Christ's footsteps, to transform this world through service, service rooted in compassion, and I believe in the awareness That in meeting the needs of other people, we meet our deep need of being connected, not only to Christ, but to one another as well. Amen.